2: Welcome to this week's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy. And in a little bit, we will be joined by Mercer coach Craig Gibson. Going to talk a little bit about the Bears, a little bit about Kyle Lewis and his ascent in the major leagues and likely uh, AL Rookie of the Year status. Uh, by the time you're listening to this, you'll know whether he won the Rookie of the Year or not. We are recording this before the announcement, so. Uh, You guys will know, we will not know, but he is, of course, former Mercer standout, uh, now Seattle Mariner. So we're going to get into all of that and more with Craig Gibson. But first, I have to tell you that the Baseball America College podcast is presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out the Rapsodo National Player Database at rapsodo.com slash national database. All right, Joe, it's uh, it's an interesting time here in in the off-season. A lot of programs wrapping up fall ball. We've got National Signing Day. Uh, for the 2021 class, uh, the signing period opening a little bit later this week on Wednesday, and uh, you know it, it's a it's a busy time around college baseball. I feel like this is a time where a lot of people probably think that things are slowing down, uh, but that won't be the case for another week or two uh, as we get closer to Thanksgiving. It's kind of a bit of a frantic rush to the end, uh, especially for the teams that are still in. Full fall ball, but even for the teams that have finished that already, they still have a lot going on in terms of weightlifting and individual still skill work usually. So uh, even in November, we're, uh, there's, there's a lot going on in the college baseball world.
1: Yeah, it slows down because of the holidays, but in some ways it speeds up just because this is kind of the time of year. I, I think each person probably thinks about it a little bit differently, but this is kind of the time of year where... I start to try to start to form opinions on teams. Um, I mean, there's obviously that's kind of constantly happening, but this is when I really start to try to focus in on certain teams and certain questions I have. And, and you and I are doing the fall questions, which helps that, but it's not going to be too much longer in the future, as we've discussed recently that you and I will be putting together preseason preview material. So uh, yes, it does kind of slow down, but, but honestly in, in some ways it's about to speed up at least in terms of thinking about this stuff and starting to put pen to paper on it. And it was with that in mind that I got away last, last weekend, I went to the, the Outer Banks of North Carolina, which, you know, you've lived here for a while. Have you been to the, to the Outer Banks?
2: Uh, Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Really nice. Uh, I, I like the area. It's a little, my take on it now, granted, we were there in the off season, which was kind of by choice. I mean, one, because that's, you, know, that's the type you mean of the, the
2: off-season for the banks, not just the off-season for baseball. I've got to clarify here for, on the baseball podcast.
1: <laughs> correct. Yes, the off-season for you know, beach vacations, if you will. Um, part, partially by design, because my, my fiance and I are not necessarily, we, we enjoy going to the beach. There's no doubt about that. But we tend to be, um, how do I put it, kind of sit there under an umbrella on the beach and, and hang out, uh, beach people as opposed to spending all day in the water, kind of beach people. Uh, we'll get in the water, but being necessarily, being in the water is not a necessary part of the beachgoing experience for us. You know, you like to put our feet in the sand and walk up and down the beach and sit in the chair and, and read. And and during the heat of the summer, you know, have an adult beverage or two, what have you, that's kind of our beach experience. So the fact that it's not peak season doesn't necessarily matter much to us because we just kind of figured, Hey, you know, we'll, we'll put on sweatshirts if it's a little chilly, but we lucked out in that it was a, I don't wanna to say too unseasonably warm, but it was a warm weekend. So it really was was kind of nice. So we got the benefit of it being off season. So it wasn't as crowded. And also the fact it was warm enough. It didn't feel like a summer weekend, but it felt like a early fall weekend perhaps as opposed to a middle of the fall weekend. So that was kind of nice. But I saw some things uh, at the Outer Banks that I'd never seen before. And uh, I found extremely compelling and kind of uh, unnerving in different ways. So I thought I'd I'd share them here as kind of like maybe a little bit of a therapy experience. So uh, we're, we're walking on, on the beach, which again is, is largely empty, which is, which is really nice. And there's a couple of washed up fish, which that happens on the beach, right? I mean, I grew up on the Gulf coast and some of those beaches on the Gulf coast, frankly, are not that nice and things just wash up. So there's like a little washed up fish and there's a washed up puffer fish, which was new for me. Um, I did not know puffer fish were, at least a certain type of them were native to that area, that part of the coast, but, but they are so washed up puffer fish. And there's like a second washed up puffer fish and a third. And so we're kind of like walking around them because they're like, you know, literal, almost literal landmines, you know? So we're walking around them. So we go back the other direction. We, so now we're walking past where we've already walked and we, we, we see the the dead fish we've already walked past and we get up, you know, probably about a hundred yards past our, our starting point, go in the other direction. And there is a washed up shark, on the beach. And it's probably, it's not, you know, not like a great white shark, but it's, it's probably four and a half, five feet long and its mouth is wide open. I don't know what, how this thing died. I don't know if it tried to eat something it shouldn't have eaten and it got lodged in there or what have you, but this guy is washed up and it was relatively fresh. This, I mean, there was not decaying, but it was clearly dead. Um, and it was kind of gross, you know, it had little like, you know, bugs and stuff where had had clearly found, found their meal for the day. But, um, I, Finding a washed up shark on the beach in the Outer Banks was, was not how I expected my Saturday morning to go, but it did. And uh, like I said, it was probably one of the, the strangest things I've ever witnessed with my own eyes. And I don't know if this is something I should have expected going in. I don't know if there's something about the, the Outer Banks specifically that lends itself to washed up sea life. Uh, but that's what we saw on Saturday anyway. Well, I've never seen that.
2: I've never been at the Banks this late. Uh, so I don't know if that's playing into it. I don't know. You know, I mean, obviously we're deep into hurricane season. The Atlantic has been active. I don't know if uh, some of that's playing into it uh, or if you just got particularly unlucky or lucky as, as the case may be, you know, um, maybe it's... maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe this, is, uh, this is something you'll have uh, life experience wise that, that you can uh, look back on for, for years to come.
1: I mean, that's part of why I bring it up too, to be honest. It's not just to tell this like weird winding story. It's it's also because I don't know how to feel about it. It was kind of gross, but it was kind of fascinating. And I, I tried to Google to figure out if this is common. And and by the way, when I Googled that about the Outer Banks, I did come across stories. It seems like once every two years, there's a new story that breaks. It says like, uh, unexplained event of thousands of dead fish wash up on Outer bank shores. So like, I guess this is a thing that periodically happens in mass for some reason. This was not that it was a handful plus the shark but uh, so my, my googling didn't really necessarily leave me any any uh, concrete answers about what was going on there but like i said i don't it was interesting it was kind of gross um but it was certainly something i'll remember i think it's uh it was uh calling it a highlight is maybe not quite right but it's certainly something i will remember about this particular trip so i don't i don't quite know how to characterize and that's part of why i bring it up here that's what's that's what's good about therapy, right? You go into it and you just kind of talk things out and you see how you feel at the end. So that's kind of what I'm, I'm doing. Well, here, well, but...
2: I, I was going to say like, uh, you know, you don't quite know how to feel about it. Kind of cool, kind of gross. Like, oh, uh, that's kind of life. So li- at least that's life in, uh, li- life in 2020, maybe. So let's just chalk it up to uh, to 2020 life.
1: I and mean, that sounds about right. That seems like a, a good enough bow to put on, on that conversation for sure. <laughs>
2: Okay, so that's Joe's fish story and that's actually relevant to the uh, to the topic for the day because we're gonna talk some fishing here uh, with Mercer coach Craig Gibson. That was a favorite quarantine pastime of his and I mean I, I assume that more than just during quarantine but certainly during the spring when uh, when when baseball got shut down he was spending a lot of time. Uh, out on the fishing boat. And we're going to uh, get into that with him here, as well as uh, everything about the Mercer baseball program, which has become one of the most consistent programs in the Southern Conference since it joined uh, six or seven years ago now, as well as talking a little bit about Kyle Lewis and his fantastic rookie season there with the Mariners and how he came to arrive at Mercer, uh, a very interesting story uh, there as well. But let's get to, uh, to Craig Gibson and, and his fish story and his Kyle Lewis story and all the rest of that. Uh, so let's welcome in Mercer head coach Craig Gibson. Today on the Baseball America College podcast, we're excited to be joined by Mercer coach Craig Gibson. Uh, coach, uh, excited to talk with you today about, about a lot of different things, but I wanted to start us uh, with uh, actually some fishing talk because it's my understanding that that's how you uh, – how you were spending a lot of time in quarantine. We had extra time and and you were getting out on the lake.
3: Well, we were, we did, Teddy. We had, we had a great spring, uh, in terms of fishing. Now, of course we missed playing <laughs> our sport, but, uh, you know, uh, we did, somebody joked and said we caught every fish in Georgia, but we did turn them all back so we didn't keep any. So, uh, but it was sort of a way to pass the day and, you know, being in the game for almost 30 years, just a different spring than I've ever experienced. But it, it was, uh, know it was sort of it was an opportunity to get out and sort of just enjoy uh, a different different time and a different place and sort of take your mind off you know at the what was going on at hand to be honest with you
2: absolutely I, i can certainly understand that and i think everyone was looking for for those sorts of things um so another thing that you had going on this summer I'm sure it was a lot of watching Mariners games and, and Kyle Lewis as he uh, was was playing fantastically in his rookie season up there in Seattle um, what was it like just watching him do what he did at the big league level
3: well I mean it was why wow, it was you know just You know, I remember watching early on when, you know, first of all, the West Coast time was killing us here in Georgia, (laughs) you know, so we're staying up, you know, I I usually get up about 4.30, so trying to stay up and watch all of his at-bats every night and talk to his mom weekly, daily, (laughs) was a a challenge, but just watching Kyle, just the main thing, you know, Teddy with him, just, just seeing him healthy was a big relief for me personally, I just I know how much of a professional he is. He was a professional in his amateur life here, just the way he went about his business, his day-to-day, you know, just the commitment he would put into our game and what he wanted to achieve. But just, you know, the ability to watch him score from first, uh, you know, shrink the field defensively, those kind of things, just to see him healthy and really the great athlete that he is, man, it just gave me great joy. And of course that, you know, we played a small part of it here and just, you uh, that was certainly of great satisfaction as well.
1: First of all, I hear you coach on the uh, West coast games. I'm new to the Eastern time zone and man, that has been rough. My goodness. (laughs) I didn't, I I, I can't hang anymore. That's for sure. Uh, (laughs) Obviously we're coming up around the time of year, eight years ago when you would have signed Kyle Lewis and, and brought him in and he wasn't a particularly famous prospect. Really developed in your hands, and, and then obviously he's gone on to do what he he's done. Um, take us back to 2012, and you know what you remember about him as a prospect, and what you saw at that time.
3: Well, it's crazy. This is a crazy story, Joe. I, you know, I tell people they ought to uh, make a movie about it. But uh, really, signed him playing basketball. I mean, went up and watched him. Uh, played for a great high school. They had two seven footers on the team. So we go up and watch the basketball game. And, you know, there's this athlete out there, 6'4". And, you know, man, he really, you know, what caught our eye with him is just his ability to, he knew where his body was in space, just great body awareness, great spatial awareness, you know, has some other, you know, fortunate guys play basketball, convert them into baseball guys. And when we saw him, man, it was just like, man, you know that's a guy that we think we could sort of mold into somebody that could be a good player you know certainly the athleticism was there and you know he wasn't a great basketball player but if you ask Kyle he was a great basketball player so uh he was okay he was okay uh so uh you know we saw him and then of course that led us to watching him and you know academically he was a great student i think he you know he was a over 1200 sat guy I mean, 3.5 guy, just the total package, which we look for in the, you know, the student makeup, and you know, Kyle checked those boxes off. And man, we offered him 25 percent, sort of out of not even seeing him play baseball, just to be honest with you. Just took a chance on him, just the makeup, the athleticism. Now, once the spring got here, I did go up and watch him play and hit a ball about 400 feet off his gym in center field, and I I called our other coaches back and I said, man, this guy may be the real deal. So you know, he he played first base in high school. Never played any outfield. So once he got on our campus, you know, I tried to maximize his his ability. So, you know, he's such a great runner and athlete. I put him out in center field. I said, man, just go out here and shag some balls and let's just see how you how you would respond in center. Of course, he responded great and, you know, didn't play, probably played, you know, 20 games as a freshman, but you could see glimpses of greatness with Kyle, and then, of course, the rest is sort of history. Summer ball, the Cape, the NCAA Home Run Derby, and everything just falls into place. And first round pick. So that's sort of our story on Kyle.
2: That's uh, that, that's really incredible. And and you mentioned that that you still talk to his mom pretty regularly. Um, mm-hmm. You just what what is it like to to be you know continuing on in in your athlete's lives? I'm sure that's not the only relationship that that you've continued since. Uh, you know, since your players move on to, to pro ball or, or or to other parts of life?
3: Yeah, Teddy, absolutely. You know, man, I've, I've coached for a long time. And, you know, we certainly want to win a, ga- a lot of games. And I think we've won our share of games here and done a good job in that area. But, you know, I constantly tell our guys, I preach about, you know, what's after baseball, your legacy, what you're going to leave on our program. And, you know, with Kyle, man, he's a great baseball player. But I'll tell you about Kyle Lewis. Kyle Lewis is going to be a great husband. He's going to be a great father. I mean those are the things that you know my age for me that i really it matters a lot for me is he going to be rookie of the year absolutely he's already won two of them so i think he's a hundred million dollar guy i think he's the total package but he's not only that but personally he is a great person but you know i most of the kids that come through our program that's what we sort of identify and we look for that in recruiting i call it selecting we don't recruit we select the right guys that fit what we're doing here and and that's just part of the makeup we look for and the people that we bring into our program.
1: I think that's a pretty good segue to, to pivoting to talking a little more specifically about your program. And one of the things that strikes me is minus 2020, of course, where the season was was cut short. Uh, your program's on a 10-year streak of 35 or more wins overall. Most years in that run, you're also right near the top of, the, of, of whatever conference you've been in, whether that was the A-Sun previously or, or now the SOCON. Uh, what would you say has been the key to the consistency that your program has now achieved
3: well I, you know I think the ability to identify evaluate and you know project and make guys better I think you can make guys better on the big league level I, you know I, I think Derek Jeter could get better I, you know I, Kyle's going to get better I think you know you have to have a plan you have to have structure you got you have to have an organization in place that can really take kids to a different level and you have to push them hard I mean I you know, I've sort of changed a little bit. I used to, you know, I'd get a little older, but I, I still think, man, when you go through the gate and you get on the facility, it's it's time to go to work. And however you test those measurables, whether it be stopwatch, radar gun, bat speed, driveline, soda, whatever you use, I think there's a measurement, a testing defi- device, but I, I think if you have structure, a good plan, and you have the ability to make guys better and see it. And and people will get better. Our guys get better. I mean, like you said, Kyle, I don't think he had one offer out of high school, to be honest with you. So those kind of guys are out there, but you've got to work with them and stick with them. And there's going to be some tough times, but, man, once you persevere and stay with it and and the ability to make kids believe in you, I think that's very important. I mean, kids know what you tell them. I mean, and, man, I'm super positive with our guys. I'm always talking about championship, winning a championship. And I think in the end, that sort of pays off for you.
2: This spring, you were off to a 13 and three start when the season was halted. What clicked for this group so early on to to get you off to such a, a strong start to the season?
3: Well, but Teddy, I'll be honest with me, this is a pretty talented group. I, You know, we, you know, we have m- multiple guys on our field that are going to play professional baseball and, um, uh, you know, I think it all starts with pitching. You have to have the ability to pitch and defend. And I think in college baseball, you have to have some game changers in your lineup. Fortunately for us, we have a leadoff hitter who's a game changer. Colby Thomas is one of the best players in the country. I mean, he is exciting, he's special, he's dynamic. I mean, this guy can start you off on a good note, you know, with one swing. So when you have those guys in your lineup, it, it, it sort of, you know, things sort of fall into place for you on the mound. Man, we were okay. We lost a couple of pieces that, uh, you know, that would have helped us this year, but we've got some talented young guys that we're expecting great things out of. But uh, the one thing about it, we've our program, we throw strikes. We're going to pitch and defend, and hopefully, uh, you know, we have enough changers in our lineup that can get us on the board pretty quick.
1: One of the guys um, that, you know, you mentioned on the mound just kind of being okay, but one of, I think one of the, the things that stands out about um, you know, what you were able to do in 2020 is, is the effort of, of Jackson Kelly being so good right away. Um, to what would you you credit that, his ability to, to come in and be that type of game changer on the mound um, so
3: early in his career? Yeah, Joe, I'll tell you, first thing with him, he, his makeup is off the chart. I mean, he is a bulldog. I mean, he's not a guy that's going to throw the ball in the low to mid 90s. I mean, he is, you know, he's a mid 80s guy, sort of an unorthodox low three quarter slot guy. But his skill level, the ability to locate the baseball, is unbelievable. And just uh, man, the 13 and three start. I sort of, I sort of, we should have been 15 and one. We let a couple of games get away from us. And he certainly was off to a great start individually. But I love his makeup. I love his fight. I mean, he he is just a winner, and he thinks he can get anyone out. And uh, he's had a great fall, a great preseason for us. So we're certainly excited about him, the possibility of anchoring our staff this this spring.
2: You uh, you mentioned what you have coming back. There's a lot coming back from last year's team that, that you liked and you added some some good newcomers this year. As you've been able to to watch the team get out there with them this fall, what what has you excited about twenty one?
3: Well, you know, this is the same group that went up to Athens, you know, that won six or seven games in a row in a conference tournament to get a the automatic bid in nineteen. And of course, all those young freshmen are now junior draft eligible guys. So they're bigger, stronger, they're better players. They've been in our system for three years. They've had the the ability to develop. So, man, with Angelo Despina and Colin Price and Bill Knight and RJ Yeager and and then you add in Garrett Delano from Brown University who was a great player there and Ryan Archibald from West Virginia and Blake Schmidt from Purdue. We've added some positionally some pieces that can really help us this spring. And But our chemistry is really good. And the one thing about it, the work environment here has been outstanding. Guys want to get better. They want to be great players. They want to win a championship. So, you know, the culture has been good here and uh, that sort of has sort of, you know, it's been easy to, for that to sort of be at the forefront and carry us on to the spring. And of course, you know, early in this fall and hopefully into the spring coming up.
1: One thing I've spent a little bit of time talking to coaches about the last several months is just how the uncertainty around exactly what the spring will look like has, has kind of colored what they're doing a little bit. You know, we, we don't exactly know what the format of the 2021 season yeah. is going to look like and how that's going to play out. So I'm curious how that, if, if at all, has, maybe altered or changed the way or or changed a little bit about how you and your coaches went about evaluating in the fall. You know, i talked to coaches about things like, you know, we're spending a little more time focused on things like who is our third and fourth catcher because we might be playing more double headers or, you know, what kind of depth do we have at some of these positions just because we don't know what a, a contact tracing situation might look like and our position groups might get wiped out because they all live together you know things like that so what kind of things have you and your coaches been thinking through that might be a little bit different given that we don't exactly know what next season will look like
3: yeah that's a great question joe and i'll be honest with you we uh, you know our league has gone to the double header format so you know you sort of answered part of that for me we have gone to the second and third catcher option because obviously you know our guy can't catch double headers so uh you know that's been a, a big big focus for us and you know the development of your staff i mean now you're you know, your reliever is not going to throw on Friday and come back on Sunday. So now odds are you're going to get one get out and on him, whether it's be Friday or Saturday. So, you know, I think pitching depth is certainly going to come into play. And, you know, that's, you know, I think, you know, we have some quality young guys that we've tried to develop. One thing that I have done, and we're out of our team segment now, but I've kept our pitchers throwing for the next three weeks until we go home just to continually get them a little more work, make sure they're comfortable. They get in our system, and they have the ability to still progress and improve daily. Whereas most of these kids haven't played since March, I honestly just started seeing the gains and the growth of our staff the last third or fourth week of our fall segment. So I just felt like you know prematurely, I've never done it in the last 15, 20 years. I usually shut them down, and we go into swimming and yoga. But I wanted these guys to continue to throw, because I just think we're now getting them back in pitching baseball shape. So things have certainly been different
2: you, um, you guys recently renovated the, the, the field there, ortho Georgia park, it, you know, just as the the program has grown over the last few years, you know, into the, you know, the, the, the powerhouse in, in the SOCON that, that it's been, you know, just how important has, you know, the investment and, and the continued you know improvement in, in terms of facilities and other things just been for, for you guys to, to keep growing this thing. And,
3: and uh, improving. Well, Teddy, I think it's very important. I, I, I just, show, I think it shows the administration is invested in our product and our, our program. I and, mean, you know, we're very fortunate. Our president, uh, Bill Underwood is a, you know, he loves athletics and he came from Baylor and he's done a tremendous job in, in the entire university, but he really, you, you'll you see him at every event in athletics. And he's a huge baseball fan and our athletic director played professional baseball, Jim Cole. So. Those are two sort of, you know, nuggets that we have at our university that a lot of people don't have. And, uh, you know, we just launched a two hundred fifty thousand dollars locker room upgrade. That we'll finish that in about two weeks. And it wasn't a great time, but we had some downtime, so I figured I would jump in there. And man, we're 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 redoing all of our locker room, our indoor facility. So the commitment to be great is certainly here. The expectations are high, but we do have the pieces in place administratively to help us accomplish those kind of goals here. So it certainly makes life a lot easier and their expectations are to be winners and win championships. And hopefully we can, we can continue doing that. So we'll start
1: to wrap up here with a, a fun question that Teddy and I like to ask all of our guests we have here on the podcast. Um, probably the most important question we'll ask, and uh, I'll, I'll give you a second here to, to think about it. So I'll, I'll filibuster, but the question is, what is your favorite sandwich? Describe your favorite sandwich. So some coaches, players have taken it in one direction where they, they just describe if they were making their own sandwich at home. So they tell us what kind of meat, what kind of bread, you know, the cheese, the toppings, maybe a little sauce, what have you. Or sometimes people tell us, well, my favorite sandwich is this specific sandwich they make at this one place that I go to all the time. So you're open to take that, that question however you'd like to take it, but please Craig Gibson, describe your favorite sandwich
3: man you're asking a guy that's lost 60 pounds man I <laughs> <been a> year <laughs> and I've, I've gotten off all the breads and everything so i made this is going to be a terrible answer for me <laughs> well then
1: congr- I get congrats first off on the weight loss then and we'll start with that
3: yeah man i am more if i do delve into the sandwich world i'm more of a wrap now i stay away from the buns uh, so i'm the bread so i try to go with the uh the uh, whole food, uh, the wrap. So I'm not into the bread anymore. Uh, man, that is, I'm, that's the worst answer of the morning for, for coach Gibson, but uh, <laughs> man, I'm a, I'm just a turkey guy, turkey. I will eat some cheese. And uh, so I'm a, a natural organic uh, sandwich type of guy. Anything natural organic that fits there. I, I'm, I'm all about it.
1: Fair enough. I, I, um, several years ago, I went through a, a, a similar Kind of weight loss and i i was big on one of the things that helped me was when i was kind of transitioned to wraps is like a chicken caesar wrap because the caesar kind of gave it like a little bit of tanginess it felt like they in, in a world where i was not eating with a lot of flavor at the time it uh it, it felt like it gave a little flavor to it so that was that was kind of my go-to when i was in a similar place
3: understand understand
2: well you know it, it takes all kinds you know we That's got right. we got to have all kinds of sandwiches
3: here Got to right. be, gotta be hey, all no, clear. I could eat them all now. Hey, don't get me wrong. <laughs> I could go with the donut burger. I could eat them all now. But hey, right now at 50 something, hey, man, I've got, I had to get my life in order. So I had to sort of cut back a little bit.
2: Absolutely. Well, good luck uh, continuing that. that that's a, a big accomplishment for you there. Um, and, you know, we're, we're excited uh, to to see what you can do also on the diamond this, this spring. You know, it sounds like Mercer again looks pretty solid uh you know and again is going to be ready to compete for a spot in the ncaa tournament in this uh year whatever whatever 2021 looks like mercer is uh is a program to watch and we're also excited to watch kyle lewis you know just coming back from that injury and uh being able to do what he's been able to do for the mariners uh just an exciting time all around for you guys there uh down in macon
3: absolutely well thank you guys i really appreciate you guys uh having me on the uh, podcast this morning Absolutely. Thank you so much, Coach. All right, Teddy. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Joe.
2: Thank you again to Mercer Coach Craig Gibson for joining us here on the Baseball America College Podcast and sharing your fish story uh, with us. I don't have a cool one, uh, so just Joe and Craig Gibson with with their fish stories this time. Uh, Maybe I'll acquire one in in the the weeks and months to come. (laughs) But, Joe, uh, I'm fascinated by the way kyle lewis came to mercer and you know just the way that they they found him i i love the you know recruiting stories how these great college players end up uh at the place they end up and i I think this is a a unique one i i can't i mean it's probably not truly unique but i can't remember a a player at kyle lewis's stature uh you know who gets found basically on the basketball court and and then he develops into the, you know, the the greatest player in program history. Uh, Just uh, a fantastic turn of events for Mercer and and for Kyle Lewis, who who now is, of course, going on to uh, great success in in professional baseball.
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting backstory there, and I think it illuminates a couple things. One is, I think, how tenuous recruiting at the mid-major level can sometimes be just because, you know, he, he goes into a situation where, you know, he knows he's not, he being Craig Gibson knows he's not recruiting the same kids that Georgia is or the Georgia tech is, you know, or any, any number of other sec and ACC teams in the Southeast. And he, so he knows he needs to find players kind of on the margins. He needs to, to kind of be a little bit, Uh, he he needs to to dig a little bit deeper, if you will. And so that's how he he turns up a player like Kyle Lewis. But I say it's tenuous, because at the same time, he's got a little bit of a secret. But let's say Kyle Lewis finishes basketball season and says, you know what, you know, these baseball coaches are paying a little more attention to me now. I've got some offers out there. And let's say maybe he realizes, as Craig Gibson said, that he's you know, not a great basketball player. He's just a pretty good basketball player. Let me focus up more on baseball or let me do a little more of the the, the showcase type stuff. And maybe some of that stuff he did, but you get certainly late in the game. And obviously there's less recruiting opportunities, but there's a scenario where something happens there in the interim and Craig Gibson and his staff have absolutely nailed it on the recruiting trail. We know that now, given what, what Kyle Lewis did. But all it would have taken was one or one or two coaches at a higher level program to fall in love with the athleticism and see the same things that Craig Gibson did. And suddenly, maybe the story goes a little bit different. Now, maybe the relationship there is strong enough that Kyle Lewis still goes through with going to Mercer. And obviously, that worked out quite well for him and for the program. But there's definitely a way where that story plays out a little bit differently. The other thing is that I think this shows how a program like Mercer can provide value to players of... Kyle Lewis's ilk, where the other thing is those major programs have a different spotlight on them, a different level of pressure on them. Yes, they are recruiting in the, let's just say, uh, nicer neighborhoods. And by nicer neighborhoods, I mean, you know, in in the more talented places, They're, they're recruiting a higher level of recruit on average. But that also means that there's kind of an expectation of what you're going to get from those higher, higher level of kids. And sometimes there's just not as much of an opportunity for flyers necessarily. And you know, Kyle Lewis, I don't mean that calling it a flyer in the pejorative sense. I just mean that they were really taking a chance at Mercer that the athleticism would translate on the baseball field in the same way they saw it on the basketball court. And they were absolutely right about that. But there was definitely some, some bust there as well, because maybe it doesn't quite translate. We see that all the time. We're really talented athletic kids uh, are more athlete than they are baseball player. And then the baseball player piece doesn't necessarily come along. And I think Mercer is a place where Kyle Lewis could come along at his pace. And obviously we saw that the fruits of that labor as a junior at some of these other places, maybe freshman, sophomore year, he just doesn't get on the field. He's not getting much of an opportunity and he gives it up or he transfers down and maybe he never figures it out, but at Mercer, he was, they were able to give him that opportunity and lo and behold, he figures it out, becomes the best player in program history. And now is good, but likely be, um, and again, listeners will know this, but likely be the American League Rookie of the Year, and he, he's on to a, a great start to his to his pro career and one of the best players in the game.
2: Yeah, definitely want to uh, also give credit there to to Kyle Lewis just for his you know doing the work that you need to do for for the development. Obviously, you know he's he's the one that has to get it done. It's it's one thing to see it uh, within a player, but but then the player has to go out and 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 make those gains, and and he did that. And then he's continued that in pro ball, where he suffered a, a a very difficult injury early in his career, came back from that, and now is off to a uh, a sensational start to to his major league career. So excited to see where that goes for Kyle Lewis. Now back in Macon, Mercer uh, is an intriguing team uh, as we look to 2021 and the uh, the SoCon overall like we mentioned during the interview, off to a 13 and three start, they bring back, you know, a very experienced lineup this year. Mercer is pretty typically, uh, you know, an offensive team like many of the the SOCON teams are, but you know, they've also pretty consistently pitched very well. And so I'm, I'm interested to see where Jackson Kelly goes from here after that, that great start to his freshman season. And, uh, you know, just what the, the entire pitching staff, is able to do here because that that I mean that's been a big part of the Mercer success story is what what their pitching coach Brent Shade has been able to do there uh, in what is a pretty offensive heavy league. Uh, you know the what what they can do on the mound has been, I think, something of a, a separator in and why they've had the success they've had uh, over the last several years.
1: Yeah, we don't um, talk too much about Mercer when we talk about the most consistent and the best mid and low major programs in college baseball, and, and we probably should for one, but part of the reason why that is, is they've been a little bit snakebitten in that they've won the SOCON a number of times in recent years and haven't always parlayed that into regionals. And so you could definitely see an alternate history where, you know, Mercer's been to four regionals in six years or five and seven or, or what have you. And suddenly we're talking about, in terms of perception, just a very different, uh, program in terms of the way we think about them. So it's definitely a program that has done a lot of work that ne- hasn't necessarily been recognized in the way it, it probably should. So I guess in some ways this is our effort to, to do so, but I, I think it's going to be a, a really good team again in, in 2021. And, and part of the reason they've been snake bitten, by the way, and, and part of what makes them interesting to watch is that the SoCon really does have a really competitive top of the league right now. When you, when you talk about Mercer and you talk about, UNC Greensboro, which really got going under Link Jared. And I have a lot of confidence that Billy Godwin keeps that going in that direction. Samford Wofford. There's even a couple other programs in that conference that I think have a little bit of upside that haven't necessarily reached that upside of late. So it's a really competitive league, which is not necessarily to say that it's the type of league. And I learned this as I was doing the conference stock watches this summer, that it's a league that is really, really competitive, but that doesn't necessarily lead to them, Getting deeper into the postseason or getting more teams in the postseason just yet, but I think some of that stuff is, is coming. And, and you mentioned the investment at Mercer, improvements to the facility, and, and, and things of that nature. And I think some of that has happened in other places across the SoCon, and so it's maybe a little bit of a slow burn. But I, I'm bullish on the SoCon generally, and, and certainly bullish on, on Mercer given the job that that they've done as of late. I think they've done a really good job just finding a niche and winning a lot of games. And they're in a geographically advantageous location where they're, they can pull kids from Florida and Georgia and other places in the deep South. And they continue to do that and, and win at a high level. And I can't imagine that changing really anytime soon.
2: It, the, what, one of the last pieces I wrote that actually never ran this spring was about Samford, um, which was also off to a really nice start and was the SOCON favorite coming into the year. Um, so yeah, just shouts to things that, that got absolutely, uh, uh <laughs> like just thrown under the bus because, uh, you know, we had more pressing matters, but the, the SOCON, like you mentioned, Greensboro, Mercer, Samford, Western Carolina has made the tournament in recent seasons uh Wofford of course as well I mean there are good programs here I don't quite know why it hasn't translated to a regional final really or anything like that you know Samford has had some moments in in the tournament uh but otherwise it's been a lot of two and cues, I think and you know maybe that'll change at some point soon but even if it doesn't it's uh it's an exciting conference. It seems like year after year because no one is really ever able to run away with it. Even when Mercer was winning three out of four, whatever it was, uh, they, they often were getting pushed at the top. I remember there was um, on the final weekend a few years ago, they were at Greensboro. The winner of that series was going to win the regular season. Uh, they they won the series. Uh, they won the, the regular season title and uh, you know that that kind of thing happens a f- a decent amount in that conference. And so, if you're just looking for an interesting, you know, mid mid to low major conference to watch, that's a great one. And there are often very often good players in it. Not always Kyle Lewis types, uh, but the, a lot of these programs have really good college players, uh, and, and I, I find it to be a very interesting one to watch. So. Uh, keep an eye on uh, on the SoCon and on the Bears uh, in 2021 and and I would say beyond too, because that stuff isn't going away. Like we mentioned, Mercer very heavily invested, and, and a lot of these programs are. You know, Western Carolina has plenty of tradition, um, and you know, Samford uh, has a really nice field, and and is really clicking under Casey Dunn, and like you mentioned about Greensboro there. They're in a good spot. I mean, there there are a lot of schools like that throughout this conference.
1: Yeah, I'll just say one more quick thing because I could probably we could probably do another hour and a half of SoCon talk. But I even look at a team like Wofford, and I have to think about what could have been for them in twenty twenty. Just looking at the transfer portal with Wofford, I mean, they had Brett Rodriguez, who was going to be at Creighton, he signs as a as a free agent. They've got you know guys who are going to Clemson, guys who are at Coastal. Uh, they had six or seven guys who were productive players leave that program. And most of whom went to, they were all grad transfers, most of whom went to major programs. And that kind of suggests the talent level that Wofford had. And so I, you know, that, that's definitely kind of a, what could have been situation with Wofford in 2020, given the, the talent they had there. And so maybe it was, maybe it was their year and that window has closed, but it's one of the, the many things to watch as we go into 2021 in the SOCON. I, I agree with your assessment, just a, a really fun league. Disappointed that I didn't get to see more of it kind of in person in 2020, given that the season was canceled as it was. So looking forward to jumping back in next season.
2: Absolutely. Uh, so we wanted to hit on a couple of news items as well this week. Last week, uh, there were a, a few different things happened around the college baseball world that, that we wanted to uh, just kind of address here. Start with Michigan pitching coach Chris Fetter getting hired on Friday by the Tigers in the same job. So he will join AJ Hinch's big league staff as the Tigers pitching coach at a very exciting time to be the Tigers pitching coach, I would say. Casey Mize arrived in the big leagues this year, as did Tarek Scooball. Matt Manning's on his way. Alex Faeda on his way. Uh, There's a lot of good young pitching in the the upper levels of the Detroit system. And now it's going to be, uh, you know, Chris Fetter is going to be responsible for shepherding that into the big leagues and, you know, into successful, uh, big leaguers. He had a three-year run and his alma mater, of course, that includes the 2019 college world series runner up year, uh, Michigan produced three second round, uh, pitchers under his watch, and this year expects to have the first first rounder in program history in like 20 years, Stephen Hadger. Uh, so obviously he's done a great job at developing the talent there, has pro ball experience, both as a scout and he spent a season as the Dodgers pitching coordinator. So he was always kind of a guy that, that pro teams might have looked at, uh, but still very impressive, nonetheless, that he is now headed straight to the big leagues. He becomes just the second college coach in the last 40-ish years to uh, to go straight to the big leagues. Wes Johnson did it from Arkansas going to the Twins uh, in 2018. Prior to that, you have to go back to 1979 when Dick Hauser left Florida State to become the Yankees manager. That was, that was the last time anyone went straight from college to the big leagues before Wes Johnson did it. And, you know, when Wes did it, It was pretty stunning that the twins hired him he did a very good job in his first season um and in 2020 as well but there there was a market improvement from 2018 to 19 if you look at the twins pitching and obviously that doesn't all come down to the pitching coach but it's uh it does speak well of him and what he was able to do and you know then last winter Several college pitching coaches got big league interviews, including Chris Feder. And so now, when Feder actually does make the move to his hometown team, uh, it feels a little—I I should say—much less surprising, just given what we had seen in that environment over the last couple of years. But again, when you think about, you know, the fact that it had been almost 40 years before anyone made a jump like this, um, you know, prior to. To between Dick Hauser and Wes Johnson, uh, for anyone to do that, uh, you know, it, it remains pretty remarkable. And, you know, so we'll see where Feder takes the Tigers and where Eric Bakich goes in replacing him on his coaching staff. But uh, that was significant news coming out of uh, Detroit slash Ann Arbor uh, on Friday.
1: I think if you're... A college baseball enthusiast, a fan, or someone who covers it in our position, I think this is nothing—nothing nothing but good news. Short run, I'm sure Michigan fans disappointed to lose a piece that was very important in their run to being one game short of a national title two seasons ago, and you know a big part of building what has been built there the last several years. But I, in the bigger picture, I mean, a I, for Michigan, I have a ton of confidence, especially given the path that Chris Fetter took that. Uh, you know, back is going to find somebody who can, who can do the job well there. I don't have any doubt about that. And in the bigger picture though, I think it's really important. And you've, you said this before, it's really important for this pathway to be opened up, I think, um, for college baseball to, to grow in a lot of ways, because college baseball had been siloed, as you described uh, so much. So, you know, if you were a college coach, you, you tended to kind of be a college coach and, and we would get guys maybe who went from, you know, college to working maybe in scouting or some sort of uh, coordinator role and then kind of maybe move up into more traditional coaching role. But, but the direct transfer from college to uh, working, especially right at the big league level was just so rare. And I, I think it's, it's, it's nothing but good news for college baseball that this pathway has opened up because I think it opens a lot of doors for coaches who maybe are on a, a track, to manage the big leagues or be a pitching coach or a hitting coach in the big leagues to think about moving into the college ranks without fear of I'm going to get pigeonholed as a college coach. And then I'm going to have to work my way back up in the pro ranks. And we've seen it. We've seen it go the other direction. Maybe I understand he has a strong link to his alma mater, but we talked with Mitch Canham earlier this offseason, And that's a guy who maybe in a previous generation isn't maybe so sold on going back and being a college head coach. Maybe he would have. Maybe he just loves his all and the college game that much. That's a possibility, but also he was on a big league managing track and those jobs are hard to come by. And those are dream jobs. And maybe he makes a different decision 10, 15 years ago. If, if that path doesn't feel as open as it is to where if he decides he wants to go back into coaching at the major league level, it seems a lot more doable once you go back to college now. So while uh, it is a big loss for Michigan in the short term, I again have confidence they'll find a good name for that job, and secondarily, uh, or secondarily for Michigan, but the more important thing I think in the big picture is that the more we, the more examples we can have of things like this, I think it's better for college baseball because we need to open up more pathways for coaches to come in and out of college baseball into other jobs at a high level at the major leagues.
2: You know, the kind of crazy thing about this to me is just how lawn it had been when you look at other sports and you see so many examples of guys making a jump from college to the highest level um you know you think about a guy like brad stevens in the nba going from butler uh to the celtics billy donovan going from from florida to, to oklahoma city um you know fred hoiberg bouncing back and forth between the nba and college and you know all of that relatively seamlessly now obviously there are coaches that it didn't work out for like john calipari or rick patino didn't have stellar uh pro careers but you know the nba has been very willing to do this uh the nfl has seen you know several examples um you know a lot of people are talking about lincoln riley as as a potential one cliff kingsbury doing it with the cardinals now matt rule with the panthers and um you know, again, this is not without, you know, guys who who didn't do it as successfully. I don't know where we where where you would fall on Steve Spurry or NFL success or not, uh, for instance, uh Butch Davis similarly. I mean, in Cleveland, you almost have to consider him a, a huge success. that's the last playoff coach of the Browns, uh, but overall not not as successful as he was at Miami, for instance. Um you know, so you you see it in these other sports, and yet in baseball, it was it was never done, not directly. I mean, that the pro route was always there, uh, oftentimes for a coordinator job or you know, maybe a minor league managing job, but not not for the big leagues. You know, Derek Johnson, very successful as a pitching coach at Stetson and then at Vanderbilt, and you know, then became the pitching coordinator for the Cubs. Uh, at the minor league level, and then ultimately has gone on to become a successful big league pitching coach first with the Brewers and now with the Reds. But he had to go through all those steps. It, it wasn't a direct move. And now, uh, guys are showing that you can make that direct move. the The next thing is, is someone going to look, uh, is some MLB team going to look to the college ranks for a manager? That's not something we've really seen happen. Darren Erstad got interviewed by the Dodgers a few years ago when he was still when they ultimately hired Dave Roberts and and he was still the Nebraska coach. Other than that, I can't really think of many times that this has been done. I wrote about it uh, last year, like why that is and what a potential uh, college coach who gets hired by a big league team or or at least interviewed by a big league team to be a manager, who that looks like. Uh, It's a very specific profile. It's not something that I would expect to happen really anytime soon. And it's kind of unfortunate. A lot of the guys that, you know, if if baseball functioned more like basketball or football, somebody like Kevin O'Sullivan or Tim Corbin, Paul Maneri, or John Savage, Brian O'Connor, just to name a few guys, they all would have at some point encountered interest at the highest professional level to go be you know, a manager. Uh, but they haven't. And I'm not saying that any one of those guys is interested in any way in managing in the big leagues. But, you know, it, it's just kind of crazy to me that they they aren't talked about in that way. When you go and you look at these other sports and, and you see the success that they have. And I know baseball is different uh, from the other sports in, in numerous ways. Um, but, you know, it, it's still very interesting that it's been 40 years since Dick Hauser made that move and nobody has made it since then. I am sure, like I guarantee you, there have been college head coaches who would have been successful big leaguers within the last 40 years. Um, maybe that'll happen eventually. There are a lot of reasons why it's not happening. Uh, and, and again, I went into that in, in detail. You can read that on the website. I tweeted it. Um, you don't have to scroll through that many tweets to find it uh, when, when I tweeted it on Friday. If you're, if you're interested in, in reading that, in more depth, but Chris Fetter is not going to be the last pitching coach that makes this move. Um Maybe he is the only one that'll make it this season, but there will be other guys in, in future seasons. So uh something to keep in mind as uh, you see major league coaching staffs have openings that um, there, there is an interest. There is a market for, for these college coaches to move up like that. Now.
1: I even think you could, really take out the Dick Hauser example in some ways, just because George Steinbrenner is such an iconoclast, you know, and also the fact that it was Florida state and Steinbrenner has, you know, is obviously very tied into to all things, Florida. And, you know, you, well, you Dick Hauser
2: you... also had been like the Yankees third base coach before he had been the Florida state coach. Right. So it was, it was a case of like bouncing from the big league staff to Florida state head coach and then back.
1: Right. So it's just that, that that example almost is is not. I mean, yes, it is technically an example, but I, I you know, it's it's that's is so specific to that situation that it's it doesn't even necessarily I don't think count. It's so we're we're really still kind of waiting for the first example of this in, in modern times.
2: Yeah, that is uh that is a good point. And I don't know who the one is past Hauser. I have a feeling you'd have to go pretty far again. Uh so I haven't I've not done that research. Maybe I need to. Um, eventually it will probably happen but it's it's hard to even begin to identify candidates um, because it is such a a a narrow profile of what that coach probably will look like uh, that does get a big league managing look
1: there had to have been an example back in the 1940s or 50s or something of some ivy league coach coaching on the north in the northeast just back when ivy league sports were the absolute be-all end-all and Uh, at the collegiate level there. So yeah, and and things were just more regionalized in general.
2: No doubt. Um, Okay, so also wanted to mention uh, some sad news out of Virginia Tech last week. Um, Former Virginia Tech coach, Chuck Hartman, who spent 47 seasons as a college coach between High Point and Virginia Tech died. Uh, He was 85. When he retired about 15 years ago now, he had the fourth most wins of any coach in history. He'd won 1,444 games. Just incredible. Um, obviously, he, a few guys have passed him uh, since then. No longer sits fourth on the all-time wins list, but that's where he was when he retired. Uh, just uh, I never spoke with him, um, but if you listen to people who have one of the genuinely nice people within the game uh, and and just a a great coach in the history of the game. Uh, And and again, he died last week at the age of 85.
1: Yeah. Rest in peace to to Chuck Hartman, kind of one of those, uh, you know, um, I don't know quite how to describe it, but he, he was definitely one of in that era of coaches that came kind of just before the boom in college baseball, where he was just one of the stalwarts in college baseball coaching who had been at the job seemingly as long as, as anybody could remember, and so um, you know, definitely has uh, and had success there. You know, you mentioned the, the total number of wins, but they had a nice run in the '90s and, and early 2000s under under Coach Hartman. So he he was not a coach without his his successes as well. An impressive list of guys who went on to play in, in pro baseball. So uh, certainly a um, rest in peace to uh, Chuck Hartman.
2: And the last uh, item that I wanted to touch on here is the baseball and NCAA baseball committee met last week, Um, they heard from a handful of prominent coaches uh, and the ABCA uh, about a number of things that they're looking at in terms of. uh, You know roster construction rules moving forward uh what the 2021 season will look like in some respects a lot of different things there nothing concrete has come out of that um there's some hope that there will be some relief on some of the more stringent roster construction rules whether that ends up being uh the roster cap of 35 which is unique in uh college sports that baseball has that uh or maybe you know right now the um the the number of the, the maximum number of scholarship players has been raised temporarily maybe that will um you know be extended or you know permanently raised uh you know a number of things they can do there many of them that they are they are still looking at uh i don't think we'll see any firm action on that until uh, january at the earliest but Uh, That's a thing that that is, uh, you know, being discussed as is some of the postseason stuff. The biggest question, I think, to be addressed there is what happens if conferences go with the conference-only slate? How does the selection committee then go about, you know, determining which are the best teams? What does RPI mean? And, um, you know, all the rest of that. And and also, I was told, discussed was, uh, should teams under 500 be able to make the NCAA tournament in a year where like if, if there are conference only slates, there are going to be some good teams that finish under 500, just because if if they aren't able to play non-conference games, that's just kind of the way it's going to go. So there is some discussion about whether to, uh, to lift that rule again, at least temporarily for the 2021 season.
1: Yeah. Just, uh, I mean, look, anybody who, is is looking for baseball to have some some concrete answer at this point uh i mean just look at where basketball still is and kind of extrapolate that out and understand that baseball is probably going to be working on a similar timeline i would be pleasantly surprised but surprised nonetheless if if we felt pretty confident when teddy and i podcast mid-january when we're really in the thick of getting ready for the season if he and i sit there and we have 150 schedules in hand, and we have a firm idea of what everyone is doing. I just don't think we're going to, to have that, whether it's regular season scheduling, the postseason stuff, maybe we'll have a little bit more hammered out, but I think some of that's going to depend on what the end schedules look like. And so um, we're just, we're still so much in limbo here and we all, we all kind of want answers and we just, we don't have them. And and so much, you know, the committee stuff is obviously Craig Kylitz has said as much as kind of just about making sure that, um, they have, they're kind of a unified front and that, uh, everybody has, has had an opportunity to, to discuss things and get it out in the open and and that they have a little bit of a, of a plan in place. But, but I will admit, um, perhaps I'm, I'm not giving enough credit, but I, I will admit, I am a little bit worried just from the standpoint of not worried for the season itself. We've talked about that, but, you know, I'm confident we're going to have some semblance of a season. There's a lot of different motivations going into that, but I'm a little bit worried that uh, baseball may fall into the trap that basketball did a little bit, where you know we we kind of have this one plan, and in the, the minute that house of cards falls down, there's a lot of stuff left in the lurch and a lot of scrambling going on. And one of the mistakes basketball made, I think, was getting a little over aggressive with what they could do, and when the you know some of these multi-team events started popping up. They're pushed for more and pushed for more and pushed for more to the point where it looked like there might be a regular, a a seemingly regular type of non-conference season in basketball. And um, with baseball, I want as many games as possible. Do not get me wrong. But I just think baseball needs to be really smart about focusing on what they can do and what's doable as opposed to pushing for the most normal version of the baseball season that can be had. I want that. But I also don't want baseball to be in a position where they get a little bit aggressive and then we get closer to the season and everybody around the country is scrambling on February 1st to try to lock down the games they're going to play. And and we're not there yet. But, um, you know, as it it seems like there's a lot of different strands going on as, as far as scheduling goes. And it feels like not not everyone is on the same page and that's okay. There's 300 programs out there, but at some point they're going to have to at least get somewhat on the same page about what the goal is here and what they're looking to accomplish.
2: Yeah, I definitely think that's right. I don't think basketball has achieved any sort of harmony, but they maybe don't have to, whereas baseball maybe needs to come closer to some of that. Um, I don't know that it's going to be interesting to, to track, you know, in basketball, we've seen anything from, if you look at Baylor, who, um, you know, is a top, Two team. I, I think they were number two in the AP poll that that came out today as we record this. Uh, you know they're going all over the place, playing as many premium games as they can find. Uh, meanwhile, the the Patriot League is going conference only, and their teams are not allowed to get on a plane uh, during the regular season. Um, that's how far apart basketball is. And oh, by the way, the Ivy League isn't sure that it's going to play. Uh, So if that's how far apart Division I basketball is, you can only imagine how far apart Division I baseball may end up being in terms of the conferences. Uh, And as always, there are going to be a lot of coaches that want to make sure that uh, the lower end conferences and schools don't control what they are allowed to do. And I I don't think that they will be, um, you know, but on some level, it it all is interconnected even if you know the they're allowed to do whatever they want like you still have to have partners for that so i don't know it's gonna be interesting to watch i know we've seen some schools release schedules here until you know we have any sort of idea um from the ncaa about what the season is going to look like uh in terms of opening day in terms of are is 56 games still the maximum number Uh, of games allowed you know we've seen other sports including basketball have you know have the the number of games they're allowed shortened uh so until baseball gets some kind of of guide uh on, on that kind of stuff i i don't know that any schedule that gets released particularly um is is truly ready to go you know i there are a lot of schools that haven't announced basketball schedules yet and as we sit here they are uh two weeks out from starting their season so we'll uh we'll see where all of that goes but that that is something to keep in mind if as you monitor the the next several weeks um this is a time where traditionally you would see schedules being released i don't know how many schedules are even going to 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 be released there there are a couple out there already but again i i would I would say they all come with a, a pretty significant subject to change asterisk.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's also, I mean, let's let's just be realistic about it too. Um, come, you know, barring something change, obviously I think most people listening to this will have seen on social media or elsewhere on the news that there's some good vaccine news out there, and so, but of course, that takes a while to roll out. So, barring some sort of silver bullet fix to, to this situation, uh, being realistic also suggests that. There are going to be series canceled. They're going to be games canceled, and so the other thing that I think we we will see, and I think we will see this in basketball too, by the way, is scheduling on the fly, which we've seen a ton of in football so far. And football is a little bit a little bit different, um, but that's where that's where I kind of talk about, um, you know, the, and you talk about it needing a little more unanimity. Um, you know, if you're a team that's trying to play a couple of non-conference weekends, or maybe if midweek games are allowed, which is a whole other debate, but if midweek games are allowed, some teams may play them, some won't. If you're looking around for playing partners and a whole bunch of other conferences are going conference only, well, you're going to be, you're going to be a little bit left in the lurch. And maybe, maybe you hope you would have wished that your conference would have gone to more conference weekends and de-emphasized allowing non-conference games. And so that's where, you know, if you're not on the same kind of all on the same page, you're singing from a different, songbook and you know you could end up um, kind of being left out in the cold a little bit there and, and missing out because of cancellations or um, things of, of that nature. So uh, much 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 more to come on that front certainly.
2: Absolutely. And we will continue to cover it here on the baseball America College podcast and uh, you can check out everything on the website as well. Uh, that's baseballamerica.com. I am on Twitter at Ted Cahill, Joe is at Joe Healy, BA. And again, we'll have all the news as it comes to you, uh, scheduling and otherwise over the next uh, several months here leading up to opening day, whenever that is, whether it's in February, February 19 or not. Um, There's plenty to uh, to check out on the website right now. Joe uh, mentioned the fall question series, which is continuing signing day is Wednesday. If you're listening to this already, you know, and it's already Wednesday or Thursday, um, you should be able to check out our 2021 uh, recruiting class rankings. I am striving to finish those now, um, but by the time signing day hits, hopefully you will be able to read full reports for for the top classes over on the website. Uh, if you're not subscribed to the Baseball America podcast, you could do so on your favorite podcasting app apple podcast spotify stitcher wherever you get your podcasts you can find us please subscribe rate review we appreciate all of that joe and i will be back with another episode of the baseball america college podcast next week we'll have another great interview guest and uh you know we'll be excited uh to speak with you then i want to thank all you guys for listening to this episode Thanks to Rapsodo, which presents the Baseball America College podcast. Remember, you can check out the Rapsodo National Player Database at rapsodo.com slash national database. Thank you to Mercer coach Craig Gibson for joining us on this episode of the podcast. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll see you next time on the Baseball America College podcast.